There is a place in England that houses the most dangerous criminals in the country. It is one of the most secure institutions in the world. It is a place of violence, a place of despair, and a place where very few can enter and even fewer can leave. You probably think this is a secret military base or perhaps a prison. No, it is a hospital, a high security hospital for the criminally insane. But today's story isn't about what happened inside these harrowing walls, but what happened outside on what would otherwise have been a typical rainy Tuesday in Berkshire, England. An event that forever changed the lives of a whole country and resulted in the government installing a secret device to ensure it could never happen again. But before we get started, my name is Raphael Parvin. I am the true crime lawyer. And on this channel, we unravel dark mysteries, explore true crime and delve into the bizarre, the wacky and the unexplained. If this piques your curiosity, I want you to summon the like button to the stand so I know that I have your full support. Please also subscribe and turn on all notifications so you don't miss any of my weekly uploads. And finally, I want to see how good of a lawyer you are. In every video, there's a random Easter egg that will appear momentarily on the screen. The first person who finds it and comments on what it is and includes a timestamp will have their comment pinned to the comment section down below. So are you ready? Court is now in session. Deep within the heart of the English countryside, nestled among the misladen hills, and concealed by an air of secrecy and despair, stands the ominous Broadmoor Hospital. Formerly known as Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum, this institution looms like a fortress, and its foreboding facade invokes a sense of trepidation to all who dare to approach it. Known as a place of dark secrets and hidden horrors, it is a sanctuary for society's most deranged and most dangerous minds. Completed in 1963, it was built to a design by Sir Joshua Jebb, an officer of the Corps of the Royal Engineers, who was tasked with building the most secure facility in the United Kingdom. Not to keep people out, mind you, but to keep people in. Sprawling in a state covering approximately 210 acres, its perimeter is marked by razor-sharp barbed wire, tactical security dogs, armed SWAT-trained guards, two 10-foot-high anti-climb fences trailing all the way around the hospital boundaries and over 300 round-the-clock CCTV cameras designed to do one thing, to eradicate the possibility of escape. But escape from what? And escape from who? The criminally insane. Now, some may call those who inhabit Broadmoor as being evil. Some may call them misguided souls. The truth is perhaps somewhere in the middle. The individuals who are housed in Broadmoor are those who have committed horrific crimes, those who have done unimaginable things. That is the uncomfortable truth that we all have to accept. However, they also never intended to do those things, because they suffer from, and for many they will always continue to suffer from, serious debilitating mental illness. Such illness that has shrouded their judgement, controlled their mind and paralysed all sense of light and hope. Nevertheless, there is a reason why such strict vigilance is adhered to at Broadmoor, and why there is such high security measures in place. Because the patients who are housed at Broadmoor are dangerous. Sick, but dangerous. And complacency can lead to death. And that is where we begin our story. 
John Stratford was born into a working class family on February the 27th, 1930, in Borden, Kent, England. And from a very early age, it became apparent that he faced developmental delays and intellectual disabilities, which would greatly impact his interactions with the world around him. Growing up, Straffin struggled to fit in with his peers, often experiencing difficulties in social situations. As a result of his cognitive impairments, he found it challenging to communicate effectively, leading to feelings of frustration and isolation. As the years passed, Straffin's behavioural problems became more and more pronounced, and his difficulties in school were more and more evident. His academic performance suffered, and he was unable to keep up with his peers. The combination of cognitive limitations, social isolation, and academic struggles likely contributed to feelings of anger and resentment, further exacerbated by his emotional instability and the troubled life that Straffin would later go on to lead. In October 1938, Straffin committed his first known crime and was promptly referred to a child guidance clinic for stealing and truancy. Truancy is the formal term for when you skip school. Now, less than a year later, in June 1939, he first came before the juvenile court for stealing a purse from a girl and was given two years of probation. What is interesting, and a point to note, especially when you consider laws surrounding juvenile offending, is that Straffin's probation officer found that he did not understand the difference between right and wrong, or the meaning of probation. Now, the reason why this is important is because of the Dolly Incapax rule. Dolly Incapax is the Latin phrase that roughly translates to incapable of wrong. And this is a common law principle seen and applied worldwide, where children between certain specified ages are presumed incapable of criminal intent, even if the criminal act is committed. Now, the actual range depends on the jurisdiction, but given that Straffin was around nine years old at the time of offending, and given that he did not know the difference between right and wrong, if Straffin was charged with a similar offence today, the Dolly Incapax rule would have applied, and unless there was any mitigating evidence which would have pointed to the contrary, Straffin would not have been found guilty. Another reason why this would apply is because of Straffin's actual mental age. When Straffin's probation officer started getting doubts about Straffin's mental capacity, he took the boy to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist's report assessed Straffin's IQ as being 58. Now, for reference, the average IQ for a child in Straffin's age would have been around 90 to 109. This placed Straffin's mental age at 6. And as a result, Straffin was certified as mentally defective under the Mental Deficiency Act of 1927. As a result, in June 1940, the local council sent Straffin to St. Joseph's School in Swanbourne, Warwickshire, a residential school for mentally defective children. Two years later, he moved to Besford Court, a senior school. During his time, Straffin was observed as being a solitary boy who took correction very badly and suspicion of his criminality arose. For instance, at age 14, he was suspected of strangling two geese. And if there was one common trait behind every would-be serial killer, is the abuse, torture and killing of innocent and helpless animals at a young age. Despite these whispers, when Straffin was 16 years old, he would lose the support of his school and his mental health care. After the school authorities undertook a review of Straffin, they found that his IQ was now 64 and his mental age was 9 years and 6 months. For some reason, of which we are not privy to, this was enough to recommend his discharge from the school. 
And this is quite confusing because when Straffen returned home to Bath in March of 1946, the medical officer of health examined him and found that he still warranted certification under the Mental Deficiency Act. However, it was not enough to warrant that he reside in a mental health facility. But this would change on the 27th of July, 1947. A police officer of a small country town picks up the phone. On the other line, a 13-year-old girl who says the words, I would like to report a crime. She reports that a boy called John had assaulted her by putting his hand over her mouth and saying, what would you do if I killed you? I've done it before. Six weeks later, Straffen was found to have strangled five chickens belonging to the father of a girl he reportedly had a row with. When Straffen was finally arrested, he was initially charged for burglary, which occurred before these incidents took place. But in his police interview, he not only confessed to all these crimes, but he laughed cheerfully, confessing to a dozen other crimes which he had not initially been connected with. With that, he was finally reprimanded in custody at HM Prison Warfield, where the medical officer examined him and certified him as being mentally retarded. On 10 October, he was committed to Hawtham Hospital in Bristol under the Mental Deficiency Act of 1913. Hawtham was quite progressive, being the first institution in the UK to be functionally designed and built as a complete open colony, which specialised in training mentally disabled offenders for resettlement in the community. As Straffen had been under investigation for burglary, his certificate stated that he was not violent or dangerous, and he demonstrated that. He was well behaved and isolated himself from other inmates and he kept his head down. As a result, in July 1949, he was transferred to a lower security agricultural hostel in Winchester. There he did well initially, but he fell back into his old ways when he stole a bag of walnuts and was sent back to Hawtham in February 1950. In 1951, Straffen was examined at Bristol Hospital, where medical readings showed that he had suffered from wide and severe damage to the cerebral cortex, and they concluded that it probably stemmed from a medical illness caught in India before he was six years old. Now, with this prognosis and Straffen's seemingly good progress at Hawthorne, the authorities considered that Straffen was sufficiently rehabilitated to be allowed a period of unescorted home leave. And this is where things get a little controversial. You see, under the Mental Deficiency Act, it was required that periodic assessments be made to determine whether a person could still be classed as being mentally deficient. As such, after an assessment was done when Straffin turned 21, the authorities of Hawthorne assessed that Straffin continued his certificate for a further five years, but the family disputed the assessment and appealed. On re-examination, the medical officer of health for Bath actually found improvements to Straffen's mental age, this time increasing it to 10. This meant that instead of renewing Straffen's certificate to five years, it could be shortened drastically to only six months, with a view to completely discharge him at the very end. Now, we have no concrete evidence which tells us definitively as to whether the doctor's assessment was correct, or whether the pressure of the appeal induced the doctor to give a more favourable outlook. Regardless, what we do know is that it would only take five days after the doctor's decision for Straffen to commit one of the most cruelest acts that leaves us stunned, saddened and angered by even till this day.
On 15 July 1951, Straffen visited the cinemas by himself. His route took him past one Camden Crescent in Bath, where five-year-old Brenda Goddard lived with her foster parents. According to Straffen's latest statement to the police, he saw Brenda gathering flowers and offered to show her a garden that was filled with an array of beautiful flowers. Taking her hand, he escorted her to a nearby shallow woodland. Lifting Brenda, he carefully lifted her off the ground and placed her on the other side of the chicken wire fence. There, he turned her around and wrapped his fingers around her neck and strangled and strangled and strangled until she breathed no more. Then, in one final cruel act, he picked up a nearby stone and used it to bash her fragile head. Making no attempt at hiding his tracks or even little Brenda's body, Straffen had the audacity to simply get up and continue on to the cinemas where he watched the movie Shockproof and returned home. Although Bath police had not previously suspected that Straffen was violent, he was considered a suspect in the murder and he was interviewed by police on the 3rd of August. However, they had no evidence and they were not able to arrest him. In a later interview with a prison psychiatrist, Straffen said that he knew he was under suspicion and he wanted to annoy the police because he apparently hated them, foreshadowing him. On 8 August, only a few days after being brought in for questioning for the murder of Brenda Goddard, Straffen would go on to commit his second known murder. He again was at the cinema when he met nine-year-old Cicely Batstone. Taking advantage of Cicely's innocence, he convinced Cicely to come with him to see another film at a different cinema and then go with him on a bus to a meadow known as Tumps on the outskirts of Bath. There he beckoned Cicely closer and using his bare hands, he strangled her. With his second murder in the span of a couple of weeks, the clock was ticking for authorities to apprehend the person involved. This time, however, the circumstances of the crime allowed there to be witnesses. For instance, the bus conductor recognised him as a former workmate, and a courting couple in the meadow had seen him very closely. And finally, a policeman's wife had also seen the two together. This was the golden ticket. Mentioning it to her husband, the alarm bells rang. The next morning, she guided police to where she had seen the two, and Cicely's body was discovered. As she diligently described the man she saw with Cicely, it was clear to all that the person who committed this vile act was under the nose of the police all this time. Straffen was immediately apprehended and charged with Cicely's killing, but the police didn't have to work hard to piece what happened together. Much like when Straffen was first arrested for burglary, he not only admitted to what he did, but he proudly gloated about his role in the murders of Cicely Barstone and Brenda Goddard. On 17th of October 1951, Straffen stood trial for murder before Justice Oliver. However, whilst there were various pieces of tangible evidence, the only witness to be heard was Peter Parks, a medical officer at Horford Prison. He testified to Straffen's medical history and stated that, in his opinion, that Straffen was unfit to plead. Justice Oliver subsequently commented, in this country, we do not try people who are insane. You might as well try a baby in arms. If a man cannot understand what is going on, he cannot be tried. With that, the jury formally returned a verdict that Straffen was insane and unfit to plead. And Straffen was transferred to Broadmoor Hospital in Berkshire, England. 
Now, at the start of this story, I describe what Broadmoor was from the outside. On the inside, the Institute serves a very different purpose. The purpose is to heal. Whilst at that time there were seclusion rooms, physical restraints, and certainly cell-like living quarters, the primary focus was not to punish, but to treat the disease so that sanity could pour back into the minds of the unsound. In addition, the staff were trained not to judge the patients by their crimes, but focus their attention on improving their health. Therefore, the patients were not locked up like prisoners for 20 hours a day. Instead, they were given treatment and therapy sessions and tasked with jobs so they would one day have the training and skill sets to use in the outside world. They also dressed normally. They weren't forced to wear patient scrubs or a uniform. They were able to wear everyday clothing. All of this is not only a good thing, but it's a needed thing. However, as I said before, complacency can lead to death. In Broadmoor, Stratham was given a job as a cleaner. He was, for the most part, a reasonable patient. Much like his time at Hawthorne, he kept to himself and followed routine, albeit he had the same tendency of being annoyed at authority figures, including doctors, nurses and orderlies, if they enroached a little bit too far into his space, both physically and metaphorically. It is perhaps this initial impression of normality that Straffin gave off that led to the perception that his treatment was working and that he was on the road to being cured. And this was especially evident when you compared him to other more abrasive patients at Broadmoor. Whatever the reasons, the doctors and his treatment team were willing to give him more freedom and with that more privileges. And what do we say about complacency? Because it will again lead to death. On the 29th of April 1952, Straffin went with an attendant and another patient to clean some outbuildings, which were close by the 10 foot tall external wall. In the small yard immediately adjacent to the wall was a low shed with a sloping roof, which was approximately eight and a half feet high at its highest point. And in the yard were empty disinfectant cans. Straffin asked his supervisor if he could shake and clean off his duster, and on receiving permission, he went outside into the yard. As the other patient walked back inside, Straffin surveyed the rest of the yard, ears and eyes peeled for any of movement. With one last look, he climbed onto the roof and climbed over the fence. This escape could be seen as being opportunistic, but it wasn't. It was all premeditated, because whilst he was wearing his work clothes, Underneath, he had on his civilian clothes, the perfect disguise to blend in with everyone on the outside. Only 20 minutes after escaping, Straffin made his way to a private drive in Crawthorne and approached a Mrs. Doris Spencer, who was in her garden. He asked her for a drink of water, which she gave him. Holding onto the glass of water, he stared at Mrs. Spencer, and with a grin, he commented how close her house was to Broadmoor. He then, with a sideways glance, pondered to her what was the likelihood of someone escaping. Without waiting for a response, he abruptly left. An hour and a half later, he reached Farley Hill, and at about five o'clock, Straffin came to the point where five-year-old Linda Bauer was riding a bicycle around the village. Within half an hour, Linda Bauer was dead. Straffin had again killed, killed another innocent child. And just like last time, Straffin got up and continued walking like nothing had happened out of the ordinary. As Straffin continued walking, he came across another householder, Miss Kenyon, 
who he again begged for a glass of water. This time, he also requested a lift to the bus stop. Miss Kenyon agreed, but as they were drawing up to the stop, Straffin saw some men in uniform and asked whether they were police. And on learning they were, he swiftly got out of the car and ran away. But they weren't police. They were nurses from Broadmoor. After telling the nurses of the suspicious behaviour of her passenger, they wasted no time. Straffin was recaptured only a few minutes later. Being driven in the car on the journey back to Broadmoor, Straffin haughtingly said, I have finished with crime. At dawn the next day, the body of Linda Bower was found. As an escaped patient near the scene of the crime, Straffin was the prime suspect. When the police arrived at Broadmoor to interview Straffin at 8am that morning, they arrived even before news could travel to the hospital that a local child had been brutally murdered. Walking to the ward where Straffin was housed, various locked security gates and doors periodically buzzed, followed by a mechanical clinking sound, notifying everyone that the doors were unlocked. Once they reached Straffin's room, three nurses peered into the eye hatch and slowly unlocked his door. Still asleep, they beckoned Straffin awake, and the two detectives started questioning him. Asking him what he had done when he was free, Straffin immediately replied, I did not kill her. Hook, line, and sinker. Without needing any more prompting, Straffin continued on, saying, I know what you policemen are. I know I killed two little children, but I did not kill the little girl. I did not kill the little girl on the bicycle. On 1 May, Straffin was charged with murder of Linda Boer. And on 21st of July, he was brought before the courts where he pleaded not guilty and the defence opted to leave the question of his sanity as an issue to be determined by the jury. After retiring for just under an hour, the jury returned with a verdict of guilty, which implicitly declared Straffin as being sane. His sentence? the death penalty. You would think that this would be the end, the end of all the pain and the injustice and the anger felt by not only the parents of these innocent children, but the community at large. But once again, Straffin would have luck on his side. The date of his execution was fixed for the 4th of September. However, on 29 August, it was announced that the Home Secretary, David Maxwell Fife, had recommended to the Queen that Straffin be reprieved on the basis of his mental impairment. With that, his life was spared, but he would never ever see the outside world again, remaining imprisoned in maximum security prisons and hospitals for the rest of his life. Taking his last breath, Straffin died at Her Majesty's Prison Franklin in County Durham on the 19th of November 2007 at the age of 77. He had been a prisoner for 55 years, 3 months and 26 days. As to the escape which led to this tragedy happening in the first place, both Broadmoor and the government was heavily scrutinised by the public and after a public inquiry, it was decided that a special device should be installed to prevent this event ever happening again. 13 purpose-built sirens were installed at various locations within the surrounding towns and villages with the intention of warning residents to remain in their homes and keep their children supervised following the escape of a Broadmoor patient. The sirens are activated as a test at 10am every Monday to ensure that they are working. As of 2019, 
Broadmoor decided to decommission all the sirens and install a new siren within the facility, with the aim to use social media more effectively as a primary means to notify all of any escape. Broadmoor Hospital still continues to notify nearby schools directly and emergency drills of hospital escapes are still diligently practiced. So that was a story of the Broadmoor Hospital sirens. What do you think? I want to hear your thoughts down in the comment section below. If you haven't already done so, summon the like button to the stand so I know that I have your support. Please also press subscribe and turn on all notifications so you can be part of the exclusive club who gets to see my videos as soon as they are uploaded. Also, my videos are available as podcasts on all major streaming platforms and I also do podcast-only exclusive stories, so make sure you check them out. Links all down below. Finally, if you ever need to contact me or you want to share a story, you can do so on Instagram, Twitter or TikTok or under the username Raphael Parvin. I read all my DMs. So thank you so much for your time today and I will see you on the next case.